morning when he showed up to church to preach, uh, he had forgotten this passage. He had spent all week preparing next week's passage. And so as the scripture was read and before he got up, he realized, I better have something to say. And so even if RC forgets, um, maybe I can somehow make sense of this passage. But I'm also reminded of Charles Spurgeon. And if you don't know the story, you know, the great prince of preachers from the 19th century in England, he, he always said this thing as he climbed the steps to his pulpit. And, and listen, if you haven't seen these types of churches, you're talking a long way to go, right? A pulpit that's up here, you climb the steps. And with every step he took, he would say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. So we definitely believe in the Holy Spirit here and his work in our hearts through the preaching of the word. So let's turn our attention now to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired in an errant word, Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. As Jesus said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the son of man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater then Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. The grass withers and the flower fades, but this is the word of the Lord and it indeed endures forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for giving it to us. Lord, every word is true and every word is for us and every part of it is so that we would hear from you and we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So help your people this day. Help me, O Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book titled, An Anthropologist on Mars, I don't know if anybody's read that book. I've looked through it, but neurologist Oliver Sacks talks about a man named Virgil. This is a man who had been declared blind in early infancy. When Virgil was 50 years old, he underwent what was then a revolutionary surgery. And because of this surgery, he was given the gift of sight. But as he and Dr. Sachs found out, having the physical capacity for sight is not the same thing as seeing. You see, Virgil's first experience with sight was more than confusing to him. 
He was able to, to make out colors and movements and everything was so new to him. So arranging them into a coherent picture proved to be much more difficult. Over time, with some therapy, he did learn to identify various objects to make connections, but his habits and his behaviors never changed. He never ceased to interact with the world as he always had, as a man born blind, unable to see, if even now he had the ability This led Dr. Sachs to a profound conclusion that extends even farther than its application to this patient. Listen to what he concludes. One must die as a blind person to be born again as a seeing person. One must die as a blind person to be born again as a person who sees Last week, you may remember, we observed Jesus interacting with antagonists and skeptics after he had cast out a demon from a man. You may remember that the antagonists were accusing Jesus of performing such work, not in the power of God, but they were accusing him of performing this work in the power of Satan. And the skeptics, they were unsure of what was happening. So they were asking him to show them some sign Show us a sign so that we can really see that you are doing the work of God. They were essentially saying, prove it. The situation, if you remember, was tense. Yet Jesus responded to them and he did so clearly. And he tied it all back into what they shared in common. They both lacked faith. Both of them lacked faith. And he reminded them as well that there can be no neutrality as it relates to his person and his work. You might remember Jesus made it very clear that you are either for him or you are against him. There is no middle ground. And so in our text this morning, the narrative continues. This isn't a new scene. It's the same scene. The setting is the same. Jesus has just finished the response where we left off last week. And it seems now that maybe silence has come over the crowd, perhaps even an awkward silence, but this doesn't mean that his response is finished. He, he still has more to say. Jesus has one more rebuke. He has one more call to embrace the coming of the kingdom of God through faith as the promised Messiah. He has one more opportunity to to understand that such faith not only comes by hearing the word of God, but that to truly see him for who he truly is and to have saving faith in him. Jesus wants them to know, he wants us to know that one must have their spiritual blindness put to death so that their sight can be reborn. And when that happens, they will have new eyes and they'll be able to finally behold the radiant and glorious hope of the gospel that Jesus is bringing. But before Jesus even gets to continue, perhaps while that silence is settling over the crowd, a voice shouts forth and it's a surprising word of admiration. You see it there in verse 27. I just read it. A woman cries out, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. 
This rather interesting interjection gives us our first of three points to consider this morning, blessing by association. If you're taking notes, this is our first point, blessing by association. It might seem strange to us, these words that she shouts out or how she does it, but to those gathered there today, it wouldn't have been foreign to them to hear this. The words that she shouts out, uh, they reflect a prevalent belief or idea during a time where, remember, it was often difficult for women in this time to obtain any kind of public honor or notoriety. Uh, What she shouts out is this idea of blessing by association, the belief that a woman could find her own greatness by bearing a famous son, to be known as the mother of someone great in Jesus's day, whether that be a prominent warrior or a popular leader, to be known as the mother of someone great meant a transformation of her core identity. She was no longer just a mother. She was the mother of him, the great mother of the great him. Such a woman with such that privilege would be truly blessed and would be called blessed. And to bless such a mother as this woman does was to bless her and to bless her son because she wouldn't be blessed unless her son was someone great. So this interjection is actually a blessing upon Jesus as well. Picture this woman standing up and almost saying, I am for you. Amen. I am for you. Blessed is the woman who bore you. Blessed is her womb. Now there's often, because most don't understand that, there's often even more confusion by the way Jesus responds to her. Look there again at verse 28. Look what Jesus says. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Some hear this and they take it as a rebuke, as if he's correcting her by contradicting her. But I don't take it that way at all. Did she say anything wrong? I mean, what she said was true. The mother of Jesus, and if you don't know who that is, that's Mary. Mary was indeed blessed. If you don't believe me, just go look at 148. She says so herself. After being told that she would uh, give birth to a son, to the Messiah, what does she say? From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Guess what? This woman is the first one to have the privilege to do it. She's the first one to do it that we have recorded. But even though what she says is true, there's still more to say, right? There's still more to say. She's still in danger of missing something really important, of missing the point. So Jesus, in a way, accepts her words, but then does what Jesus often does. He turns us to a greater and deeper truth. And that's why he responds to her as he does. It was a blessing for Mary to give birth to Jesus and to nurse him, but it's a greater blessing to hear God's word and obey it. That type of blessing isn't just for Mary. 
That blessing is available for all. It's a, a universal blessing by association through obedience to God's word. And in case you're still not convinced, think about this. Mary herself is a good example of what Jesus has just said. When God called her to be the mother of the Messiah, what happened? She believed. And if you look at Luke 1:38, look what she says. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So he holds her up as an example of faithful obedience. Yes, Mary's blessed by being my mother, but she's even more blessed because she obeyed the word is what Jesus is saying. He's not rebuking this woman. He's teaching us a greater truth. You see, it's not Mary's person that calls for blessing, but rather it's her trust in and obedience to God's word. And I have to address this. This is why it is so egregious that so many today, especially those in the Roman Catholic church, it's egregious that they falsely hold to things like Mary's eternal motherhood and that they would even pray to and worship Mary and their belief that somehow Mary participates in their salvation. And if you've never heard of this before, it is a very prevalent belief in the Roman church. It's egregious. You know, her most important relationship to Jesus was not as a mother to her son, but as a sinner to her savior and a disciple of her Lord. The fourth century church father, Augustine or Augustine of Hippo, he said it well when he said this, Mary was more blessed in accepting the faith of Christ than in conceiving the flesh of Christ. So in case I wasn't clear, it is sinful to worship Mary. God alone commands our worship and we worship him as he's been revealed in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We worship them and them alone. So we see that the people whom God truly blesses are those who hear his word and then do it. That and that alone is the true blessing by association that Jesus is making clear. And he's making it clear to skeptics. He's making it clear to antagonists. And he's making it clear to, as I called them last week, the true believers, to the saints gathered there that day. But there's a problem. The problem is that many people are not content with just a word to hear and believe. What do they want? Something more. They need something more, they say. They want a sign to see that God gives them proof. This is a continuation. This sign had already been requested back in verse 16. You can put your eyes up there and see. And now Jesus is continuing that response. After this interjection and addressing this woman, he turns back to these skeptics and he responds to them here and if, if for your outline purposes, verses 29 through 32. And from there we get the second of our three points this morning that I want you to consider. And that is judgment by unbelief. Judgment by unbelief. I mentioned this last week, I'll mention it again. 
I'm not really sure what these people are asking for. I mean, Jesus had already done so many signs. For over two years now, what had he done? He'd cast out demons. He'd healed the sick. He'd raised the dead, right? He had fed the multitude, calmed the storm. Miracle after miracle after miracle. In fact, the the people crying out for a sign just saw a sign. He had just cast a demon out. They've seen it. You see, it wasn't more signs that the people needed. It was faith. They needed to believe the signs that had already been given. Because if they didn't believe any of that, what sign could they possibly believe? What could satisfy their hunger? So Jesus in verse 29 says to the crowd, and if you notice, Luke points out that the crowd's getting bigger. That's to help us see the tension of the moment. Oh, let's see what he has to say. Let's all gather around. What does Jesus say in verse 29? He says, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Everybody remembers Jonah, right? But I don't want to assume that you all do. So Jonah is an Old Testament prophet. There's a a book in what we call the Minor Prophets called Jonah. Jonah was called by God to go and to preach judgment, right? And forgiveness of sins through God, right? Through Yahweh to the pagans in Nineveh. He didn't like this assignment. So he bought a one-way ticket and got on a boat to go in the opposite direction. He wasn't gonna do it. Then God intervened, okay? All these things happen. Jonah ends up getting thrown off that boat into the sea and swallowed by a big fish where he spent the next three days in the belly of the fish. Jonah finally came to his senses. He repented and then the fish vomited him up back onto the dry land. Now Jonah was ready to be obedient to a degree at least. And he went to Nineveh. Jonah warned the people of Nineveh of God's judgment. He called the people to repent. And then what happened? They did. He watched them do it. He watched them repent of their sins. There's more to this story, but we'll stop the story there. Because Jesus sees a connection, obviously, with Jonah's ministry and his own ministry. But it may not necessarily be clear what it is. And so to help us this morning, I'll point out that there's two direct, there's probably more, but direct correlations. One of these correlations is obvious and the other one would not be obvious if Jesus hadn't connected the dots for us. It's hard sometimes living on this side of the Bible, right? Because we've we've sat under teaching and we've heard so many times, but if you had heard this the first time, it probably would have went right over your head, like so many of the things that Jesus said. So let's consider the obvious correlation or connection, right? That is their mission. Both Jesus and Jonah were prophets uh, sent to warn people of judgments and to call them to repentance. Jesus' sermons, right? The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe. All right, so that was the call. They were preachers. But you have to ask yourself, what was so miraculous about their preaching? 
I mean, if you're gonna call it a sign, and the word that Jesus used here for the sign of Jonah, it must be a miracle. Yeah, I think it was a miracle that the people of Nineveh repented, but there's more here. It comes in the second correlation that we actually have to turn to another account of this. Luke leaves out something for whatever reason that God inspired him to do. He leaves out a key thing that Jesus says that Matthew records for us over in Matthew chapter 12. So if you'll turn over there with me, this is a parallel passage. And don't be afraid that God gives us multiple views of one telling of something that happens. It's for our good. And we thank God for that. But there's a a key phrase here in Matthew 12. If you look at verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So we know we're on the same. Now look, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Thank you, Jesus, for making that connection for us. Because I'm not sure that on our own, we would have ever made that connection. The sign of Jonah. The sign Jesus is pointing to. Hadn't even happened yet as he's speaking here, but it would happen. And it would be the ultimate sign It would be the greatest sign of all signs. And he would give this sign to verify exactly what they're looking for, that he really is the Messiah. It would validate his life in his ministry. You see, in the same way that Jonah was buried in the belly of the sea there in that fish, so Jesus would be buried for three days in a tomb before rising again. This is the sign of Jonah. And it's no doubt here, Jesus referring to a greater sign than the sign of Jonah. And that is his real death and his real burial and his real resurrection. The sign is the gospel. Jonah pointed to it. Jesus fulfills it in greatness. The sign is the gospel. And everyone who hears this gospel and believes this gospel will be blessed. Jesus isn't done though. He's making another point and he wants to further that point. So in verse 31, he mentions Sheba, the queen of the South. Turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Kings. I'll give you a minute to turn there. 1 Kings chapter 10. We learn of this woman here. She travels a great distance to see and to hear for herself the greatness and the wisdom of Solomon, who was king. So if you look there in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse one, now when the queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. 
And then go down to verse four. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, she was speechless. There was no more breath in her. Verse six. And she said to the king, the report was indeed true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. That's what Jesus is referring to. And then look how he drives his point home in verses 31 and 32. Two phrases. Something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater is here. If the people of Nineveh repented at the message of a prophet who was resurrected from the sea, if the queen of Sheba rejoiced at the greatness and wisdom of an earthly king that led her to give praise and glory to Yahweh, the father God in heaven, what will be said? This is what Jesus is saying. What will be said of this generation? What will be said of you who rejected someone even greater than Jonah and even greater than Solomon? What will be said of you who reject me when I'm standing right in front of you? And then he goes on, the men of Nineveh and the queen of the South will rise up at the great judgment on the last day and they will condemn you They will condemn this generation for its failure to hear the word of God and obey it. He's still making that point. And I was just heartsick this week when I had to write this question. What will they say about our generation? What will they say about our generation? Those who have the gospel, those who have heard it, but failed to believe it. I hope you see that the heart of the matter that Jesus is addressing here is truly a matter of the heart. Just as a person who is blind from infancy will be unable to make sense of their newfound ability to see. So a person whose heart is hardened to the work of Jesus Christ as it's revealed in the gospel They'll be unable to believe it. The sign is already there. The real problem is their unbelief. And that brings us to our third and final point to consider from this text this morning. Believing by seeing. Believing by seeing. Jesus makes this point with an illustration and it's there in verses 33 through 36. 
In other passages, this passage is set apart from other ones because in other passages that talk about light, we find Jesus using light as a picture of the believer's witness to the world to show how we are called to shine forth for him. But here, Jesus uses light in a different way. Here, he's referring to himself. When he's talking about light, he's referring to himself. He's making the point that I'm not hiding. I'm not hiding somewhere in the shadows. The candle of this gospel, of the gospel is not hidden in a cellar. It's not underground. Jesus is saying, I've done my miraculous saving work right out here on the open stage of human history where everyone can see it like the lamp that blazes from a lighthouse. The light of Jesus and the gospel blazes for everyone to see. So if we fail to see Jesus as they fail to see Jesus, it's not because Jesus does not wish to be seen. I like how one commentator puts it. He says, there are plenty of lumens in Jesus's lantern. There's plenty. The problem, and Jesus makes it clear in his illustration, is that our eyes are too dim to see his glorious grace. That's why Jesus here in verse 34 says that the eye is the lamp of the body. The eye, as you know, is the organ that gathers light and brings illumination to the rest of the body, much the way the, the lamp will illuminate a room. A clear eye will see the light, but a bad eye won't. It'll keep the body in darkness. The point Jesus is making is that this is also true spiritually. That's why he says, when the eyes of the soul are clear, we're able to see, right? We'll be able to see the light of Jesus Christ as he shines forth in the gospel. So to see Jesus in all his glory, to see ourselves written into the, the great story of his gospel, we must first believe what he has revealed. Believing it will most certainly lead us to see it. There's a good friend always reminds me, the heart always gets there before the eyes do. So shepherd your heart there, shepherd it there. But if our heart is hard, what does that say? That means that our eyes will be as well. And when our eyes are hardened by, think of it as cataracts, like unrepentant sin, or, or even when our eyes are blinded by the skeptical demand for more and more signs and more and more evidence, then we will never be able to see Jesus for who he truly is. In the end, the problem is not that we do not have enough light to see. It's that our hearts are too hard to believe. So Jesus wants these people gathered before him and he wants us, you and I, to understand that he's not the problem here. They are the problem. You and me, we're the problem. There's no blame shifting. So look what he says in verse 35. Look there. Be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. 
That's a warning. That's a serious warning. It's a warning for the religious people standing before him. It's a warning for the religious people in our day. I mean, think about this. How terrifying is the thought that there are some who may know something or maybe even a lot about Jesus. There are those who, who might think that they know the word of God and that they are believing it. There are those who are even worshiping in church somewhere, believing that they've seen the light, but that light isn't really light. It's not the true light of the true gospel. What if that were any one of us? My testimony includes a time of that. Maybe yours does too. I hope and pray that none of us right now are included in that, but I'd be remiss if I didn't call each and every one of us to something so much better. The people I just described are often referred to as hypocrites. And that's a word Jesus will start using as he gets closer to Jerusalem and he moves his uh, words of fluffy kindness, I'll call it for now, uh, towards the scribes and the Pharisees, hypocrites. There's a lot to say about that. We'll get to it next week. That's not the faith we're called to. We're called to have a faith that is marked by a saving belief that sees Jesus for all that he is for us in the gospel. A faith that rejoices in the work that Jesus did to rescue us from judgment. A, a faith that sings, right? A faith that embraces the blessing of heaven that flow to us because we're eternally united to Jesus and we'll always be with him. He calls us to a faith that works in us that actually works in us to produce works. Faith that works in us to produce abundant fruit of obedience and righteousness for his sake. Those who hear the word of God and do it. I like to call that kind of faith a fanny faith. Yep, you looked at me how I expected you would. A fanny faith. Many of you have heard of Fanny Crosby. She lived in the 1800s, prolific hymn writer, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. To God be the glory, great things he has done. And even all the way, my savior leads me hundreds of hymns. When she was a very young girl, maybe seven, I can't remember, she became sick. And through an ill-informed treatment, she ended up losing her sight. Many years later in life, she was playing a hymn for a gathering of people and a man spoke up and said this, loud enough for her to hear. It's a shame that God would take away the sight from such a talented woman. She didn't skip a beat. Listen to what she said. If I had my way, I would have been born blind. For when I get to heaven, the first face I would ever see would be the face of my savior, Jesus. That's a fanny faith. That's a faith like fanny. That's a wonderful testimony that believing truly is seeing. So let me ask you, do you have that kind of faith? If you're like me, you're like, well, most days. <laughs> I understand. 
I understand. Do you have that kind of faith? If so, then rejoice and be glad. Give, give God all the praise for what he's done in your life. Bless the name of Jesus. Rejoice in Jesus. I mean, grab your bulletin. How did we all just not fall into a puddle when we sang grace alone? I want to read the lyrics again. I was in darkness all of my life. I never knew the day from the night, but spirit, you made me see. I swore I knew the way on my own. I had a head full of rocks and a heart made of stone, but spirit, you moved in me. And at your touch, the finger of God, my sleeping spirit was awakened and on my darkened heart, the light of Christ has shone. Amen. Amen. I, I can only, I can only believe because my hard heart was changed. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but God made me alive together with Christ Jesus. By grace, I've been saved. Praise God. But I'm not done because there's one more thing I need to remind myself of, and I'll just include you. Don't forget those who are still lost in their spiritual darkness. As we continue to walk through the gospel according to Luke, you see that Jesus just continues. He just continues to hold out the truth. He continues to teach the truth. So have mercy on those who still demand signs and evidence. And don't grow weary in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Don't grow weary. Warn them, of course, of the judgment to come. Pray for them. Pray that God would do for them what he's done for you, to give you a new heart. God, give them a new heart that'll help them see the hope that comes through the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. Just don't give up the hope that God can do for them what he's done for you. Amen? Amen. Thanks be to God. Would you grab your bullets?